to the 414th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Dr. Peter Chin Hong back to COVID calls. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. This is a special COVID Calls at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And over the next several weeks, there'll be COVID Calls at irregular times. So please do keep up with my Twitter feed at US of Disaster for most updated times and guests. As always, please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests. And feel free to suggest yourself as a guest on COVID Calls. As of February 15th, 2022, the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center reports that there are 925,287 deaths from COVID-19 in the United States. 83,120 of those are in California and from San Francisco County, the most updated totals of deaths from COVID-19, 756 lives lost. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, A Best Friend to So Many, Tributes to Surgeon Who Died of COVID. This was written by Sarah Marsh and appeared November 19, 2021 in The Guardian. A doctor who died of coronavirus while helping others battle infection has been described as a tower of strength by friends. The death of Dr. Irfan Halim came after a nine-week battle with the virus, which he contracted only two months after he joined the COVID intensive care unit wards at Swindon Hospital in the UK. It's believed he contracted COVID at his place of work and collapsed during a shift on 10th of September, 2021. He was in intensive care in Swindon before being transferred to the Royal Brompton Hospital, where he received extracorporeal membrane oxygenation treatment. Aleem was a consultant general surgeon who worked across a variety of practices during his 25-year medical career. He specialized in laparoscopic surgery and spent time working on Harley Street. His death occurred shortly after that of his father, Kamal, who also died from COVID, close friends of the family said. John Hughes Paulett, a family friend who met the doctor through a school fencing club, told the Evening Standard Halim's death had left, quote, an enormous gap in many places and spaces, unquote. She said he would frequently commute for more than two hours from his home in Barking to Swindon to treat patients. Irfan had a kind word for everybody, she said. It's so difficult to accept that a man who took every medical and clinical precaution against COVID died of the disease. She added, when I picture him now, I see him standing beside his wife and family, a tower of strength. He's the husband, the dad, the best friend. I see him living through his wife and children. Hughes Paulette said she had spoken to Halim's wife, Sila, hours after she watched her husband pass away in intensive care. She was broken. The first thing she told me was, he went out to work and he never came home. It was the longest shift. GoFundMe page was set up for Halim, already raising by the time this story was published in November of 2021, 80,000 pounds. The money 
will be used to help support Sila and her family. The page on the GoFundMe account reads, we have set up this fund as close friends and family to ease the burden of losing Irfan. Irfan was the sole breadwinner for his family. His wife wrote, Irfan went to work on Friday to September, Friday the 10th of September at Swindon Hospital. He'd spent the past two years saving COVID patients. And on Friday, September the 10th, it was just another day saving lives. He was on a ward round wearing his scrubs and collapsed at his workplace, having caught this disease from work. Irfan stayed in Swindon until the 23rd of September in the ICU and was then transferred to the Royal Brompton to receive treatment. He fought hard to be with his children every day. With a broken heart shattered in pieces beyond imagination, I muster what little strength I have to write this message, she wrote. She said her husband gave her 15 magical years of marriage and four beautiful children. Irfan, you were not only my best friend, but a best friend to all our children and to so many others, she wrote. The obituary of Dr. Irfan Halim, who died in November of 2021. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and I'm really excited to have Peter Chin Hong back to COVID calls. For those of you who are not familiar with Dr. Chin Hong. Let me introduce him. He's Associate Dean for Regional Campuses of the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. He's a medical educator who specializes in treating infectious disease, particularly infections that develop in patients who have suppressed immune systems. He directs the Immunocompromised Host Infectious Diseases Program at UCSF. His research focuses on donor-derived infections and transplant recipients, and molecular diagnostics of infectious diseases in patients with suppressed immune systems. At UCSF, he's a professor of medicine and also the director of the year-long inquiry program in the School of Medicine, and he was the inaugural holder of the Academy of Medical Educators Endowed Chair for Innovation in Teaching. Peter Chin Hong, it's great to see you. Welcome back to COVID Calls. Thanks so much, Scott. Always a pleasure, and thanks for having me on like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from today and, and what the situation is there in terms of the pandemic. Yeah, so I'm calling from San Francisco at a very uh, significant time. So we're trying to reopen again um, tomorrow uh, at midnight tonight, our mask mandate for indoor spaces for vaccinated folks expires and it's not going to be renewed. So tomorrow is going to be a big symbolic move for many Californians, even though um, you know, in, in reality, many people in the Bay Area are probably still going to wear their masks, particularly in risky indoor settings. But I think metaphorically, not having a mandate means a lot. It means that we're moving forward. Uh, and even though it makes people feel nervous a little bit, uh, it is the right move, the right time. Um, so that's kind of where I'm seated, uh, situated. Um, you know, I'm, I have a lot of reflections, um, even thinking about our call on where we've been in the last two years. Uh, what we could have been doing, uh, where we're going for the future, because as someone, as, uh, you know, uh, I think it was, um, uh, C.S. Lewis who said that you can't, uh, rewrite the past, but you can certainly, you know, think of an alternate ending for the future based on our actions now. Thanks for 
situating us, and it's uh, it is a momentous day that's coming up when the mask mandate falls. I want to ask you some of the details about that in a moment and get your opinion about you know, the way that policy has been enacted. I, I just wanted to um, remind you, uh, remind others, I had you last, this is your third visit on COVID calls. It's marked out different stages of this pandemic. Maybe it's a way to periodize COVID calls, the sort of Peter Chin Hong eras of these discussions. Um, you were last on on April 6, 2021. And at that time, globally, there were 2,863,045 deaths from COVID. The United States at that time was over half a million, 555,621. I guess it was, the first thing I want to ask you is just in that interval between April of 2021 and now, how have you been and, and what stands out to you most for that time period, this last eight months or so, 10 months? Well, I think uh, what surprises me the most is that Omicron is so shape-shifting. We've been here before. That's why I think tomorrow is a momentous time in California. You know, when we tried to reopen in California, it was around the time when we were on together, you know, specifically California tried reopening in June 15th, 2021. And two weeks later, we probably had two weeks of freedom, absolute freedom. We thought the vaccines will protect everything. Uh, and, uh, there wasn't going to be any more COVID and, uh, we celebrated. And of course, uh, we know the story. Delta came. Then we probably didn't celebrate as much because we learned our lessons from thinking COVID will be over and Omicron, of course, came with new challenges. So I, th I think my last few months have been marked by, uh, not expecting, uh, an end necessarily and not celebrating too early and being a little bit cautious, but at the same time, wanting to encourage everyone to engage in life because, uh, on the other side, there've been a lot of vocal, you know, opponents of all these mass mandates and vaccination mandates, et cetera. But there have been a lot of people who've hold themselves up inside at the same time, who are the, you know, the silent uh, group who, and I've spoken to many of those patients who don't want to go anywhere because they're afraid of getting ill. Uh, and for the last two years, they've really been isolated. So to me, this has always and also been an epidemic or a pandemic of loneliness, um, speaking even for my mom who lives in New York. So I have all of these reflections. Uh, it was supposed to have been a new era politically for the U.S. with the Biden administration from the last time we spoke. And I think there was a lot of hope. And the Biden administration did a lot to sort of give a national strategy and align science and politics, but still wasn't 100% uh, you know, foolproof either. And most recently with Omicron, I think uh, what we realized is that, you know, not just the Biden administration, but we all did put our, all of our eggs in the bas vaccine basket and at the loss of not having enough diagnostic tests and uh, not giving enough and, and specific guidance around masks that could have probably avoided a lot of uh, heartache and anxiety um, over the last few months. So those are the summation of my uh, reflections at the end of the day, you know, I do still believe in the human spirit and the resilience of people, uh, to soldier on regardless. And, you know, that is 
probably something we'll reflect on in the years to come. I'm I'm sure so, and I th- I think in no in no community will we reflect more on that probably than healthcare workers. That and I I'm glad that you pointed out the uniqueness of that moment in time in April of 2021 because um, particularly in states that had managed the pandemic well, or or comparatively well, like um, Massachusetts or or California. Um, it was moving into a time of exuberance. I think maybe people forgot that, you know, in May and June, people were putting things back on their calendars. They were buying airline tickets, night profession. They were signing up for fall conferences and all these things. And then Delta and then Omicron, of course, with the one-two punch really changed the way people looked at what was going to be possible. I want to ask you, Peter, about numbers for a second. Uh, I have been at, at odds with myself about, you know, I've been, I read the numbers every day, um, the death totals from different parts of the world. And I, I want to ask you how what your confidence is in those numbers. I mean, the numbers I read for today, 925,287 deaths in the U.S., um, 756 in San Francisco County. I mean, first of all, how how do you feel about these reported numbers, how accurate do you think they are? And I guess, secondly, um, how, what do you think they do sort of psychologically to people when they hear those numbers? Yeah, so I think particularly early on in the pandemic, the numbers were probably not as accurate as they could have been because we didn't have enough diagnostic tests. And probably a lot of people died early on that wouldn't describe to COVID. Um, still in, in lower resource areas around the world, uh, many people are dying. They're not called COVID because of lack of, of diagnostics. Um, so that, that's still happening. Probably a little bit, uh, less so now than early on in the pandemic. But of course, uh, many people believe that these deaths are, of course, an undercount because they don't account for, uh, all of the other deaths because of COVID that people didn't seek medical attention for. So there's all the heart disease, you know, um, central nervous system disease, like strokes that could be averted, cancer treatment. So for me, when I see the numbers, I have a lot of reflections. I think, first of all, it's an underestimate of COVID deaths. Secondly, it doesn't even speak to, it's just the tip of the iceberg of all of the deaths that we've seen because of, you know, of the bystander effect because of COVID. Uh, And third, as you're alluding to, we become numb with numbers and statistics. Um, 2,500 people are still dying every day in the United States. And it seems strange that we become numb to it. Um, and we just say, well, maybe it's not endemic yet because, you know, 2,500 deaths is too much. But as we say this, we don't really think of the enormity of that number still. And, and when you say even the deaths in the United States, over 900,000, that's crazy. Um, and what's even more heartbreaking is most of the deaths occurred in a year when we had plentiful vaccines in the United States. So 300,000 died in 2020, which seemed already shocking. But what was even more shocking is, you know, 600,000 died in 2020, 2021 when vaccines were being rolled out. So again, it speaks to the fact that we could have averted lots of deaths, thousands of deaths, and in no part that was due to uh, politics. So 
it's strange that politics has infiltrated healthcare so um, unapologetically during COVID and exposed all the fractures of disparities and access and, uh, you know, people feeling that they didn't have a voice. So they had to decide that I would stand by no mask, no vaccines, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine because I feel like I'm, I'm being left out of the national discourse. No, that the point you made there is one you know, historians and public health researchers in the future will probably look back at those numbers and rub their eyes and say that I got it. The numbers are wrong or they're switched here somehow that there were 300,000 deaths in the year, uh, you know, before the vaccine. But then once there was the vaccine, the numbers were double. It, it speaks to some, as you said, fundamental irrationality. Uh, and some of it is, is political with the vantage point that you have now of time. What do you think about vaccine hesitancy in, in terms of, of COVID? That which still remains, for example, and, and how to meet it, but also just how to explain it more generally looking back last year. Yeah, so I think um, one can explain it because of, you know, part fear, part politics, um, and, you know, misinformation. So what's different about COVID, of course, and the COVID pandemic, even compared to the the last few pandemics we had, like, uh, you know, maybe swine flu in 2009, or even, uh, you know, certainly the the Hong Kong flu and the, you know, Spanish flu before then, is that this has been a, pan- a pandemic of disinformation or misinformation. So just as you've had, you know, you have your talking heads in every pandemic, but this time you have uh, people who, Purport uh, to have credentials who just can go on social media and say anything like there's chips in vaccines or uh, the vaccines have tracking devices or, um, uh, you know, they will cause you to become infertile. I mean, those are very real, uh, have real repercussions on people's um, acceptance. And even if people can eventually rationalize that they're not true. Because there's uncertainty that's raised, um, I think that leaves people out of the dust, uh, out, you know, out to dry and, and not really feel um, confident about getting the vaccines. And and vaccine hesitancy, of course, is not something that's a developed world issue. It's all over the world, um, even in the developing world and even in Eastern Europe. And, and again, if you go to Eastern Europe, and I'm sure from your work, uh, you've reflected a lot on this. Um, many people think it's because of the the influence of the state on health previously and people not trusting that. Uh, of course, it's, I guess at the end of the day, there's so many different reasons why people have been hesitant about vaccines. And it's, of course, in the U.S., part of a growing movement in anti-vaxxing that started, that's kind of been snowballing over time. Um, so, you see all of these come together with COVID and uh, again, no easy answer, but regardless of how we splice and dice the pie, about 30% of Americans will probably never get a vaccine, even if their job depending on depended on it. I w- was looking through your, your very active in giving great interviews. Uh, and so it's, it's easy to find the lots of, uh, interviews and quotes and, and people ask you to comment on lots of things out there in California in terms of this pandemic. And I'm glad they do. And one of the things that came up 
uh, and you mentioned it a moment ago, was this endemic, the use of the term endemic, the hope that COVID somehow becomes endemic versus pandemic in California. I, I wanted to sort of get your sense of that. First of all, just how you see the distinction between the two terms, because the term endemic to me is is a little hard to pin down. And then let's follow up and talk a little bit about whether or not that's actually the state of play in California. Yeah, so I think it's easier to conceptualize what endemic means, and then we can apply it to where we are in COVID now. So endemic means that something is in the background. Um, you know, maybe some people will get sick, but we as society, as society, accept it. We move along with life, um, you know, uh, normally. And when somebody gets sick, you know, we try to treat them. But if they don't do well, you know, we accept as a society. I mean, examples abound in in the world. Um, I think everyone brings a comparison with influenza. And I think it's a good comparison just to show you where we are with COVID. So in influenza, we probably have, um, you know, tens of thousands of people dying uh, per year in a flu season, uh, um, depending on the year. And um, not certainly not um, hundreds of thousands. And if, if you divide it by a day for daily rate, of course, it's arbitrary because people in flu die in a season. So it's a few months of the year. It's about 100 people a day, um, as opposed to 2,400, 2,500 a day, which is currently our situation. So that's one of the differences right now between something we consider endemic and where we are with COVID. And then the second is predictability. So we know when flu is coming, we can prepare the house for the storm, we can get vaccines, we know what happened in the other parts of the world in their winter, so we can know if it's a bad season, a good season, and make uh, sufficient preparations, do public health campaigns, etc., and even predict what kind of vaccine we need. COVID is not predictable. Um, the only predictable part about COVID is that it's not predictable. Um, we know that as long as there's a transmission chain, that there's a chance of having a mutation. And every two weeks, there's a new mutation, but only some rise to the ranks of the rogue gallery of mutations. So because of that uncertainty, it's not really an endemic. People throw the word out a lot, but I think what they're referring to is a lull or a pause. Um, mm. And again, that's really what is going to happen in the next few months, we think. Um, so in that, you know, you can still prepare for the storm coming. You just don't know when the storm will come next. So if I got you right, then there's not a sort of a numerical statistical threshold that then you say, medical professionals say, okay, we've reached endemic now. You, you use the term acceptability. So it's it's something that's reached a sort of social and policy level of acceptability, and then you just move on with it, with life. Yes, and that's coming back to your earlier question about how numb we've gotten to all of these mm -hmm. extra zeros and statistics. I mean, when you throw around 2,500 people dying a day in the U.S., people just seem normal about it. Like, you know, it's, oh, well, at least it's less than, you know, two weeks ago when you look at New York Times tracker is, you know, they say it's 6% fewer deaths per day than two weeks ago. And we feel, oh, okay, it's stabilized. But to me, I'm like, wow, 2,500 deaths a day still when on average, 
influenza will kill 100 people a day. That's like way off. But again, it comes to your point of what is acceptable society is not a scientific concept. It's based on values and a bunch of different things. And science only provides some of the truth um, or shapes policy in one way. At the end of the day, it's going to be values, just like what you've been seeing with, you know, the move to to potentially have a dialogue about mandates in Canada now after the truckers did their protests and it's still are doing their protests. Uh, it's coming to, you know, the Canadians are talking about whether or not mandates are even needed anymore because, um, you know, maybe we already achieved our goal of vaccinating more than 80% of people. And, um, you know, if society's values don't support mandates anymore, that's the way to go. Even though science says mandates are the way to go, we as a society don't think it may be necessary for the future. And if you look at even the announcement today that Coachella, uh, in the, in California is not uh, going to need vaccinations or testing to get in. I, it's again speaking to people's um, sense of where we are right now. Even though scientifically, uh, you know, it may lead to more cases and potentially more deaths. I, I think as a society, uh, the Coachella organizers are, are okay with that. And people who decide to go to Coachella will be okay with that. Do the mask mandates in California fall into the same sort of category of analysis for you? I mean, is it in a in a sense the removal of the mandate is is related to some sort of societal acceptance of a level of risk, or is it actually driven by some statistical markers that were laid down, and the health officials said when we reach this, we remove the mandate? I think it's a little bit of everything uh and if you look at the heterogeneity of the county's response to the state saying it's okay to drop the mask in in certain set situations you know not everybody's on board so uh Santa Clara County home to Silicon Valley just south of San Francisco is saying no i don't care if the eight other counties around me is uh dropping their mask mandate we're going to keep on doing it the city of L.A. is also similar in saying, I don't care if California is going to drop mass. Uh, we're not going to do it. I think L.A. has a little bit more of a case because they do have some of the most overcrowding uh, areas in the country, even more than New York when you look at uh, some of the ob objective metrics. But um, And they've also been hit so terribly from previous surges. They want to be a little bit more cautious. But Santa Clara Valley and Santa Clara County is so close to the rest of the Bay Area, again, it's more of a philosophical stance because counties have no borders uh, and, you know, people move back and forth. So the risk is shared. So, you know, I, I understand where they're coming from because they want to probably go to um, what the CDC has said um, is an acceptable level of risk, which is not red, which is where we still are at the highest level of risk for cases. But again, others are saying, well, don't look at cases. Let's look at hospitalizations because that's a more uh, healthy way of looking at um, how disease moves in a vaccinated area. And Denmark did that. Uh, so you decouple cases from hospitalizations. And because San Francisco County is doing really well, uh, knock on wood, from a hospital perspective, 
we have resources, we can take care of people who don't have COVID. We feel less urgency in keeping up the masks in that specific situation. There are tons of masks that are still going to be mandated or required in hospitals and nursing homes and prisons and courthouses on public transit. So this is, to me, an okay move because it's a baby step. And plus, a lot of people are still going to be wearing their masks because culturally, I think a lot of Bay Area residents, uh, you know, feel it like a second skin right now. Well, that's a population that I wanted to ask you a little bit more about. And as a health communicator, I mean, you're talking about a really big challenge throughout this entire pandemic. Um, and it calls back to our earlier discussion of, about endemicity and the sort of acceptability. But there are many people out there, I think I'm probably one of them, who wants to come back to you and say, but doctor, I, I, I want to know the evidence. I mean, because one county is doing this and another is doing this and, and I trust you, but you're also telling me society is ultimately deciding this. I mean, we need science to tell us uh, yes or no right now. Should I wear the mask? Should I get the booster? These kinds of questions, it puts you in a tight spot because you know the reality of how these rules are made, but you also want to communicate authoritatively, right? Yes. So we're not dispensing with science, uh, but what we're doing is moving from a sledgehammer response, which is everybody moving like blades of grass in the wind, to one of individual and personalized risk. And that's really tough because I think certainly with this pandemic, we're used to sort of like getting a very simplified easy to understand directive and everybody, sure, you might grumble, but you kind of know what the game is. But now all of a sudden you're asked to make individual decisions for yourself, for your family. So the way I communicate that is really trying to help people simplify their particular risk. There's still a lot of COVID around and to put it in um, a big picture perspective, uh, if you know there's a Mount Everest of COVID, we're about two thirds of the way down the Omicron surge, but we're not at sea level yet. And that extra um, COVID flying around is is still estimated to um, probably kill, um, you know, surprisingly, like I think I wrote down here, 4,500 Californians by the time, by the end, by in a month time. So, you know, we're, we know that a certain number of deaths are going to occur by projections. So the way to think about it is really individualizing risks. So are you all in 65 and unboosted? And all these recommendations are based on science and we can dissect them. Are you over 65 and unboosted? Are you very immune compromised, not just mildly? Do you live with any of these groups or with unvaccinated people? And are you unvaccinated? So with some virus flying around, that's still the highest tier of risk from CDC infection standards, um, you want to be very careful when you navigate the Omicron world, the post-Omicron world now. And I feel okay about that. And the reason why I feel okay about that is because the amount of virus is lower. Number two, we are better about giving advice about masks. So in the old days, it was just like cloth masks. And, you know, there's better evidence that the higher grade masks are better with one way protection. It doesn't matter what other people are wearing. And then the third thing is we have new tools compared to a year ago. So mm-hmm. we have oral agents like Paxlovid, Molecular, 
we have monoclonal antibodies that are becoming more increasing in supply, the ones that work against Omicron. And if somebody is at risk for getting seriously ill, I could intervene if early enough to then help prevent them from going to the hospital. So I think it's an okay time, but it's an okay time to still keep your guard up, but still to engage in life. And it all depends on your own uh, risk-benefit calculus. folks that you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking to physician Peter Chin Hong. And Peter, you're an infectious disease expert and a particularly expert in immunocompromised patients. Give me an update on your findings over the last year in terms of how Delta and Omicron maybe affected those patients differently. And more generally, what have you learned about people who face uh, you know, people who are immunocompromised in the midst of an infectious disease like this one? Um, well, we've learned uh, a lot about the immunocompromised population. First of all, not everybody has the same degree of immunocompromised state. We lump them all in communication, and that leads to probably a lot more anxiety than needs be. Um, mm. So there's a very immunocompromised. So those are people who, for example, they've received a solid organ transplant recently within the last three months, and uh, they they have a very suppressed immune system because we're hitting them hard with anti-rejection drugs early on so that their body does, don't reject the new organ. So they're very immunocompromised. People receive stem cell transplants, uh, like, you know, either from the, you know, mainly from somebody else. So somebody else's immune system uh, for cancers, et cetera. They are very immunocompromised as well. And people who receive certain or take certain medications, but not all biologics or anything, specific ones like rituximab. And if you have, and Colin Powell is an a example of somebody who was very immunocompromised because he had a malignancy of the factories that make antibodies. So those are the plasma cells. So if you have multiple myeloma, your plasma cells, the antibody making cells, they're not functional. So you can give him a million vaccines and he wouldn't respond to them. And that's probably what happened to him. So those are like 10 out of 10 immunocompromised. The people like di who have diabetes or cirrhosis of the liver or uh, who on some bi many biologics, they're not the same way as those people. They, in fact, probably respond very robustly to vaccines. We tend to lump them all together. But of the most immunocompromised folks, you know, maybe 50% of them will respond to vaccines. And what that's led to is probably the biggest um you know, consequence of all of this discourse is, is anxiety and fear. And I've talked to so many patients who, despite me reassuring them or trying to strategize around helping them protect themselves better, they just stay at home and are fearful about moving out to the world. So that's why I'm worried about that part. And I don't know what will make them feel comfortable. The new intervention with them is that we have a vaccine surrogate or a long-acting monoclonal antibody called Evusheld that prevents hospitalization 
and about 77% of people. It's kind of like somebody else's antibodies that last for a long time. The factory made it. You give it to somebody who can't make their own antibodies. And it kind of like it is a, as if they got their own vaccine. But, you know, there's a time limit. Hmm. So for some people, I've been saying, get this because you can't make antibodies or we're not sure. And hopefully that will give you more confidence to get out, go to the theater, go to the grocery, do the thing, see your friends that you haven't seen for two years. There are people who have not engaged with life for two years. Right. And that is worrisome to me. More than the, the death numbers and the hospitalizations. So what we saw in Omicron is a lot of immunocompromised people were being hospitalized, but they're still not dying in large numbers. Most of the deaths are still driven by unvaccinated individuals. Uh, just a quick reminder that I'm talking to Peter Chin Hong today. And Peter, I've been saving up questions to talk to ask you when we had a chance to talk. And one of these um, is a sort of medical ethics question. And the question is this, um, I guess the the most direct way to ask it is, should unvaccinated people receive the same health care that those who've been vaccinated receive? When you ask it that way, it's it's a little unnuanced. But we've seen multiple different varieties of this question uh, being asked out there. And, it, and it, I think it calls back to a long history of this kind of problem of who's worthy and not worthy of receiving medical care, which everyone has an opinion on, but then physicians have to actually, and healthcare workers more generally have to deal with that. I, how do you think about that, that problem? Because the numbers are pretty startling. When we see, you know, who's in the ICU now with COVID, they're the unvaccinated. I think that um, it, there's no question in my mind, Scott, that I would still take care of the same way, in the same zest and energy of somebody who's unvaccinated and somebody who's vaccinated. Just in the same way, I would take care of somebody who's a smoker, who has lung disease, and as a non-smoker, um, you know, I think you know, at the end of the day, when somebody's suffering, you know, my, my profession um, tells me that, I, and I do believe it, that I want to relieve that suffering and, and it doesn't matter how they got there. However, I still believe that we can uh, really encourage people very greatly by a variety of policies, et cetera, to try to get them to that place to protect their health resources. But when they get sick, you know, I, 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 I don't think of it that way. I'm, there may be some other things that may come down in the future, like insurance policies, just like they are charged higher for people with smokers, not because there's anything against smoking or against not getting a vaccine in that sense, but because the risk, the actuarial risk of, of doing poorly is higher, uh, in, in those individuals. I mean, we have lots of evidence uh, to show that because, uh, COVID isn't going anywhere any, anytime soon. So that's the end of the day. It's a very, you know, it's it's an ethical uh, issue. It comes up all the time. Um, but I think I'm more, let's try to make the, engineer the policies to make it um, something that people would want to get, try to answer their questions, try to have conversations, even though they could be exhausting. I would say, though, even though I'm so optimistic about how we would approach people, it does have consequences on healthcare workers. And that's that whole thorny concept of what is called moral injury. 
So moral injury is something when the people you're taking care of or the people you work with uh, have values that are diametrically opposite to yours. So if you have an anti-vaxxer who, uh, who are conspirational, uh, some conspiracy theorist person who's anti-science, uh, who believes in ivermectin, uh, and is coming into the hospital, even though you wholeheartedly take care of them, you're, you're stabbed with this moral injury because you think, wow, I wish this person would have gotten the vaccine. I wish they believed in science. And I don't know why they don't, because it's just kind of an attack on my profession and what I believe in, in my core. And I think that is what a lot of healthcare workers have felt during this whole two years, this moral injury. And that is definitely etching away and uh, chipping away at, at uh, their sense of well-being and, and resilience. That term moral injury is a powerful one. I follow a, a lot of doctors and nurses on social media and uh, Cassie Alexander comes to mind as a nurse who writes very eloquently about her. She's a writer and a, and a nurse and um, about this moral injury and, and how it's every day. And, and I guess my question is, what's the treatment for moral injury of that type? I mean, we hear these extreme cases, people being assaulted, but then this sort of the general daily grind of just a person who had an option uh, to be vaccinated and they weren't, and now they've they've brought their illness in again and then again and then again. I mean, it's a grind. I don't know how I would react to that. I think probably not well. No, I mean, make no mistake about it. It has had a big toll on healthcare workers uh, more than the sort of like fear that we had early in the pandemic, that fear turned into fatigue, isolation, betrayal, alienation from these uh, people who are anti-science. And, um, you know, I think that is the the big, you know, sort of like uh, legacy of, uh, one of the big legacies is this moral injury. What can you do about it? I'm not sure. It's it's really, really tough. Um, you know, the American Medical Association did a survey a few months ago, and I was shocked by the results, even though I live in this world of healthcare workers feeling uh, tired and exhausted uh, day in, day out. Uh, they said that 40% of nurses uh, registered an intention to quit in one year and 20% of physicians. So it really has this impact on on people's sense of even their calling, which is shocking to me because I haven't seen any other time when people felt this demoralized. But part of it is because of this moral injury. It's not just like we're used to working hard. Like I can work hard uh, day in and day out. Um, but the assaults, the psychological assaults, the people who tell you this is not COVID that I have and you're wrong um, or the rest of the family um, isn't getting vaccinated, no matter what. Um, that 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 rubs really that that is really terrible on on our psyche every day, day in and day out. I was talking yesterday with disaster researcher uh, Alessandra Giralaman, and she's works with a concept that she calls disaster justice, and um, 
one of the, I asked her what that means in terms of reality and policy right now. And, and she gave some very concrete examples, and one of which is just, you know, higher pay for healthcare workers. That, you know, one of the ways you deal with these kind, what you're describing as moral injury is, is you value people more. And it's not just about the money, but it also what the money entails them to do. If it's childcare, if it's savings, if it's vacation that they need, whatever it may be. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a blunt instrument, just money, but is, is that, is that right? I mean, should California be mandating higher salaries for nurses and, and doctors and people and healthcare staff at this time? I mean, I, I, I think that might go some way into helping alleviate the feelings that people have. Um, wouldn't solve all the problems, but it certainly would be a way. I mean, it may not be a permanent state, but certainly, uh, 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 you know, a stipend or a surcharge for the, or as sort of like extra for the time period of the pandemic. Um, I think that would go some way, some acknowledgement, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, you saw the, the cameras and the, the people in the community sharing healthcare workers, you know, after surge one, that pretty much went away. I mean, people were quiet and support, but then there were all these loud vocal opponents of all the things that we stand for. And I think that was shocking. Um, and then, of course, all the hate, too. There was the Asian hate, uh, and that spilled over into healthcare workers as well. Um, so the beginning of the the sort of like we are all in this together quickly dissolve into politics and politicization and hate. And uh, that was tough when you're in healthcare to like see this around you. Uh, even though you may not be the person where the hate was necessarily directed at, but it was all around you. And all of this is intertwined with what we do in the hospital as health. Uh, if you even think about a George Floyd protest, um, those were also impactful for healthcare workers because, you know, if you think about the, you know, what they were protesting, it was, um, for racial justice and that's a public health threat because it causes people to lose their lives. And anytime we think about loss of life, coming back to your earliest point today, um, that, that is something we care about and, and access to healthcare is part of the reason why, um, you know, all of these, um, the George Floyd protests, they were just, again, uh, response to a public health uh, issue. And yeah. so all of these are intertwined, you know, the cheering and the singing and the Italian arias that happened early in the pandemic were sort of, they dissipated and we were left in this sort of vacuum of having to stand up for saying why you needed a vaccine why you shouldn't take these drugs. And it wasn't because we, we had like a stake in the company or we wanted to just show right. you who's boss. We really believed in this and it was supported by data, but yet a lot of people didn't believe it. Well, our first conversation that that context of Black Lives Matter was the central part that we were talking about. And your advocacy of your students uh, going out and protesting and um, supporting that and, and giving good public health sort of advice, like how you can protest safely. But you said it very plainly then, and I've, um, I've used it in lots of classroom settings, the way you described it, is that racism is, is a public health threat. And, and so we got to fight it. And, and if, if we care about health, we fight racism. And I, I guess sort of building on that two years on now, it is, 
how do you see this as a moment still of activism? Because Black Lives Matter movement has it's not only fallen off the front page, but in fact they're they've been in retreat from state legislators who are actually going after them legislatively to say we can't even discuss these issues in a classroom. Civil rights history is too upsetting to too many people, so we can't we literally can't talk about it. So I mean that fight is underway. But is it still a moment of activism for healthcare workers as far as you're concerned? And how will that unfold, do you think? I think every day is a moment of activism for a healthcare worker. It doesn't have to be loud activism where I go on a hunger strike. It's activism where I talk to the community or I put things in perspective or I try to fight misinformation and organize activism. I still think uh, it's uh, healthcare workers that are rallying to do a lot of that, uh, whether or not it's around climate change, um, uh, vaccine equity for the rest of the world. I mean, we're, you know, we're in a new era where I think that, um, you know, healthcare workers are not, and, and, and many people in society are not going to be sitting back anymore. We're going to be engaging with some of these thorny issues that seem not to be health in the, on the onset like the George Floyd protests, like climate change, but they actually are all about health. Um, so I think you'll be seeing more of that uh, as time goes on. And, um, you know, now there's a culture, I think, brought on by COVID where we, you know, advocated for incarcerated people or advocated for marginalized and vulnerable populations because their health affected all of us. And I think the central tenant is when you, dismantle um, racism in healthcare, it improves health for everyone, just not just for the people who you're trying to advocate for. So if it makes the healthcare system better, I think, um, you know, who wouldn't be for that? But it, again, it's trying to convince people of that part. And ultimately, you know, the sad part about COVID is that it, it also, uh, you know, emphasize how divided we are um, not just, I mean, in politics, but also in the way we approach um, things like equity and and health for all. Um, and, and that was kind of sad to see. So we have a few minutes left in the COVID calls conversation with Peter Chin Hong today. Um, Peter, I, I would be remiss if I just didn't take a few minutes just to find out, I mean, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, I think I, you know, I was reading some of the literature on some of the repercussions of COVID on healthcare workers. And it kind of followed me to T. So hmm. in the beginning it was fear. And then you got, you know, some of the mental illness because of that, like, you know, feeling sad and anxious, anxious, bringing COVID home to your family, et cetera. And then we talked about the second phase, which is like the moral injury and the alienation and feeling uh, a little bit, um, you know, isolated and betrayed. Uh, by some people in society, but then what impact that has, I think, uh, on us all is, uh, you know, just insomnia. So where I'm at now is I think I'm still experiencing the last two years of, uh, and, and I just can't sleep anymore. Um, I'm before I could sleep standing up. I, there was once when I went to Hawaii after a long trip 
and I was crossing the street. And I was like falling asleep standing up. And that was me before the pandemic. Now, during the pandemic, I, I have what they call segmented sleep now, where I'm sleeping for a little bit, then I get up and walk around. And the surge is over, they say. Um, the cases are down. I don't have as many things in the hospital. But I'm still, like, amped up because of all these two years. I, I've lost, I think we all have lost a lot of relationships because we haven't seen people. We haven't hugged people. And I think I have to repair some of them but i'm tired i i can't even like you know get myself to do the things that i'm supposed to do on my outlook calendar every day much more think about that so you know i think some things are the same some things are different but i think whatever it is we'll be we'll probably be recovering for many years to come um from this and not to talk about what's happened to kids and all those years of lost learning uh leading to you know, loss of careers in the future. But I mean, are you having bad dreams, flashbacks and things like that? Or are you just too amped up to sleep well at night? I think I'm just too amped up, even though I don't feel like I'm amped up. I think, I don't know what, what it is, but it's not like I'm depressed necessarily, or maybe it's anxiety, but I, I just haven't been able to sleep. Um, you know, for the for the entire pandemic i think early on it was easy to understand because i was physically working hard now i'm working less hard physically but i think my mind is still moving a mile a minute and i think that's true for many people uh in the community not just healthcare workers and it's kind of a cumulative effect too um but so i i think to acknowledge what we've all been through is probably the first step um to try and reconnect with humans uh, the other day, you know, I, in part of my other job, as you mentioned, I'm one of the associate deans, um, mm-hmm. and we were trying to build this big project over the last two years. And all it was was Zoom and Zoom, and we were getting into conflicts. And we had our first in-person meeting um, uh, a week ago, and everybody hugged each other and said how much they loved each other. <laughs> and all the conflicts kind of melted away because I think it's easy to have conflicts amongst institutions when you're on a square like the Brady Bunch. Yeah, but when right. you're there in front of somebody and they can see that you care and you everybody hugs each other and you have like good food, it's hard really to, I mean, it, it, it makes the conflict or puts it in perspective. So that That's a form of healing, what you're describing there, doing something old fashioned, getting together in person with people and having a, a meal or a conversation. At a societal level, you know, we think a lot about the role of archives and memorials, um, mm. places where the dead are honored. And I guess I wonder now, and I've asked you about this before a while back, but do you have any thoughts about that now? What is the right form that the memory of COVID could take? And I ask this for a particular reason because what you're describing is uh, a powerful and often unexplored role that memorials play, that they're not just a place that one goes to lay a wreath, but they could be sites of active healing. Yes, they are. I, I totally believe in memorials. I mean, that's why tombstones are so important. Um, that's why, um, you know, in early on in training, uh, I remember my mentors telling me that 
the way they cope with death of patients is to pause if it happens um, and to acknowledge and to reflect on that person's life. Um, I think it's so important for all of us to move on from the pandemic by this acknowledgement. The nature of the acknowledgement, I think we can think about creative ways to do that. And they've certainly done that in different settings like the Vietnam War and those beautiful memorials in DC, et cetera, or, you know, paper cranes or things that people have done. But it's so important to remember every single person who has passed away because they come with families, first of all, and it also helps us for the future because it just reminds us that we that these are not numbers. We talked about how we become numb by numbers and we have to remember humans because we remember to care about these humans. We can care about each other when we have to protect each other because at the end of the day, this was a public health uh, disease, right? We talked about individual risks, but a lot of these mandates were about protecting our community, our loved ones, people who we may not know. How can we protect them if we don't really think about the people who passed on? So I think it could be helpful in that respect as well. So we're just about out of time. I want to get one more quick question in as a teacher and thinking about the next generation. Um, and those who are considering going into being a nurse practitioner or a nurse or, or a physician in that last 20 minutes that we've been talking, they might be edging back from the application slightly. Um, and, and so I wonder about that. I, I wonder what you think you're going to see in this sort of next uh, few years in terms of students who want to come into healthcare. And what can you do as an educator, as a master educator, um, to encourage them, to give them the tools they need to get through this time? Well, first of all, I would enthusiastically say that I'm still very happy in the work that I do. Uh, I think it's very meaningful and it's very multifaceted. And in terms of the skills of the future, uh, really highlighted by the pandemic, what we um, realize is that we don't, we can't just teach the facts anymore. Uh, you, you know, there are too many facts. First of all, you can't like learn all the medical things ever, forever anymore. Uh, we have to teach about systems. Um, and we have to bring back public health into medicine. So public health and medicine had a schism and then there was public health schools and then there are medical schools. It also happened in the schism of dental schools too. So like, we have this fragmented healthcare system, but we also have fragmented ways of training. And I think what it really highlighted is that we need to bring everyone together and learn from each other. And that's what's happening even before COVID, but it was highlighted by COVID and particularly with public health. Uh, it really uh, needs to become more integrated with uh, healthcare. Uh, and then finally, uh, the way we're teaching medicine now is not again by facts, but by um, ways of learning. So inquiry that you know very well, a habit of mind so that when people face the next pandemic, not yet named, they'll be able to use these skills to then quickly learn about the new pandemic by putting them in the scaffold that they've constructed and then being able to communicate. So new skills, uh, same profession, new challenges. But I think this generation would would be up for that. Um, and, uh, you know, we can talk about lots of other challenges. But I think those are the ones that were highlighted uh, by COVID. 
Just want to remind you, you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Please join my COVID calls discussion tomorrow when I talk to sociologist Ashton Verdery, who's part of the team that's been working on the COVID uh, uh, bereavement uh, issues and the COVID um, mortality um, multiplier. Sorry, I was struggling for the concept there, the grief multiplier concept that they came up with two years ago, and they've still been working on. Uh, I'll be talking to Ashton about uh, research that still flows out of that important work. So please do join me for that tomorrow at 7 p.m. And um, just thanking Peter Chin Hong um, for these three conversations that we've had and for this conversation today. Um, thanks for your work and your reflection, Peter, and, and I wish you all the best. Thanks to you, Scott. It's been such a journey, even without three conversations. And, you know, I feel very connected now. And um, it, you know, gave me that space to reflect. So for that, I'm truly appreciative. Stay healthy, everyone. And we'll see you next time on COVID Calls.